to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. This evening's reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17 which is on page 981 of the Pew Bibles. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves." Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. Well, good evening, folks. Uh, My name's Andrew. I'm the senior minister here. Uh, Really good to be with you. Special hello if if this is your first time tonight. We hope uh, you'll stay forever. Uh, We hope you have a great night um, after the service. I think we have pizza together. Um, So we would love to get to know you. uh, And I'll, I'll say a bit more about how you can do that later on. You're... You're coming in, if this is your first night, halfway through a series of sermons on the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter. And uh, it's a pretty good place to pick up because at this point, Peter turns from kind of announcing the reality of of, of who they are in Christ to how are are we then supposed to live. So it's a good uh, place to pick up. But the first half of the letter is terrific, so do read it. Um, I'm going to pray as we uh, think about that passage that was read. Lord, your, your word is sweet, sweeter than honeycomb. We don't always taste it that way, Lord, but we pray that you would make it sweet for us this evening. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What is the right approach for the church, for Christians, to take in engaging the world around us? That's the question I want to start with. And there are different options, different ways to answer this question. One option is what we could call the Christendom option. Uh, Christian, that Christendom is the word for that period of Western civilization, where uh, all the rulers and all the authorities were all Christian. Um, This approach says that what we need to do is to seek to use the structures and institutions of societies in in whatever ways we can to make our public context as Christian as possible. We should aim for Christian laws and Christian leaders. This approach looks different in different places. In the United Kingdom, where they're actually just is Christendom, where there is no separation between church and state, it looks like people kind of leaning into the Christian nature of the coronation ceremony and inviting 
Charles to take up his calling as defender of the faith, albeit in fairly British ways. But just look at the coronation, right? He's carrying this orb with the cross on top. He's got a scepter. His crown's got a cross on it. If you watch the coronation, it's just full of Christian symbolism. The cape, I just think, is great. That's the only reason it's there. But, you know, this is, this is the British version of, of the Christendom option. In the United States of America, it's very different. Uh, it looks like, what does it look like? Well, it looks like books like this, Stephen Wolfe's The Case for Christian Nationalism, which argues that America is a Christian nation and should become more so. Wolfe writes, This book challenges the social dogmas of our time, the secularist civil religion, by offering a positive account of Christian nationalism. In addition to justifying the institutionalization of Christianity, I offer reasons and exhortations for Christians to act in confidence for that institutionalization. The problem we face today, Wolf writes, is not simply the absence of arguments, but the lack of will for our political objectives. I hope to enliven in the hearts of Christians a sense of home and hearth and a love of people and of country out of which springs action for their good. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there is more than a hint that in practice, this means the homes and hearths of white people. Um, but, you know, maybe, just maybe there's a kind of non-racist version of this, and the book that has resonated with people. What about in Australia? Well, in Australia, a kind of Christendom approach can be seen in the Christian Democratic Party. We also hear sometimes uh, calls to remember that Australia is a Christian country. That's always been a pretty dubious claim, actually, but if you squint and look at the early 19th century at just the right angle, you can sort of see it. A different way of understanding, so this is the Christendom option, right? A different option, a different way of understanding how the church should engage the world around us is what, in the title of one book, is called the Benedict Option. Uh, it's the title of a book by a guy called Rod Dreyer, uh, and it's subtitled, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Don't worry, I'll read that in a sec, don't, don't panic. Dreyer thinks, Dreyer thinks, what does he think? He thinks there's no going back and that we are already in a definitively post-Christian context. And so what the church needs to do, Dreyer says, is pull back into enclaves of strength where we can rediscover and deeply inhabit our convictions with in integrity. And his image is of the Benedictine monasteries, that the monasteries founded by St. Benedict, in which the monks endured the fall of Christian Rome and, and preserve Christian faith for later times. Okay, so let me read a bit of an excerpt, because I think it's good to, to, to hear it in his words. We Christians in the West, he writes, are facing our own thousand-year flood, or if you believe Pope Benedict XVI, a 1,500-year flood. In 2012, the then pontiff said that the spiritual crisis overtaking the West is the most serious since the fall of the Roman Empire, near the end of the 5th century. The light of Christianity, this is Dreyer again, is flickering out all over the West. There are people alive today who may live to see the effective death of Christianity within our civilization. This may not be the end of the world, but it is the end of our world, and only the willfully blind would deny it. 
For a long time we have downplayed or ignored the signs. Now the floodwaters are upon us. It's interesting. Wolf begins his book with a story about a storm. Drea's got a flood, this image of crisis, catastrophe. The floodwaters are upon us and we are not ready. So what do we do? If that's where we are, what do we do? Well, here's how Drea continues. Could it be that the best way to fight the flood is to stop fighting the flood? That is to quit piling up sandbags and to build an ark in which to shelter until the water recedes and we can put our feet on dry land again, rather than wasting energy and resources fighting unwinnable political battles. We should instead work on building communities, institutions and networks of resistance that can outwit, outlast and eventually overcome the occupation. Fear not, he says, we have been in in a place like this before. In the first centuries of Christianity, the early church survived and grew under Roman persecution and later after the collapse of the empire in the West. We latter-day Christians must learn from their example and particularly from the example of St. Benedict. Withdrawal, that's that strategy. Retreat, that's what we need to do, says Drea. Withdraw in order to be able to preserve our integrity. Which is the right path? To fight? To seize the structures of power while we still can? Or to see the writing on the wall and withdraw? Neither. Neither. At least that is what 1 Peter teaches us. Peter's letter teaches that the church has indeed been here before. In fact, the church began here. But what we are called to is neither to grasp power nor to run to the hills, but to live good lives among the pagans, in Peter's words, in the midst of the world, despite the mess and complexity that involves. This is what we see really clearly in that passage that was read before that's printed there and I'll put up on the screen as we go. Peter turns to start talking directly about how those he's writing to should live. Dear friends, I urge you, he writes. This is a part of scripture we need because it shows us, and this is where we're going today, it shows us that the real battle we face is not the one we think it is. That real goodness has a beauty that can't be hidden in the end and that real freedom doesn't lie in getting things for ourselves but in serving Jesus. So that's where we're going. Let's look at those points together. I want to invite us first to really notice verse 11, first verse in our passage. Peter is opening here a new section of his letter. He wants to help the people he's writing to navigate the complexities of life in the Roman world. And what does he say? He says this, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. What I want us to notice is the focus. What you need to worry about most, Peter says, is not enemies without, but within. Right? Think what he could have said. He could so easily have just straight away begun talking about the world around, the the people, the rulers, the things that make it difficult, the authorities. 
And he does go on to talk about these in the chapter that follows. But before he does this, he draws our attention to what? Sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Talking about desires and saying that some desires are sinful, wrong, is tricky today. It feels dangerous because in general there is a sense that we shouldn't judge other people's desires. But the Bible is unashamedly and relentlessly interested in desire. It's it's there right from the beginning. The last of the Ten Commandments given to Israel... Who remembers it? What's the last commandment, the 10th commandment? You shall not covet everybody. Come on. You've got to know the 10 commandments. If you don't know them, look them up. Exodus chapter 20. I'm teaching them to my kids bit by bit. Um, You shall not covet such a strange commandment to have in a piece of legislation for an ancient people. But there it is. It's about desire. God commands there right from the beginning. And Israel are taught that there are forms of wanting, even wanting things that are good in themselves, but there are forms of wanting that are bad, that are bad for us and bad for others. And this emphasis becomes even stronger in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus calls his people not just to not murder, but to not hate, not just to not commit adultery, but to not indulge in lust. Desires are not just neutral things that we have and don't need to worry about. They take up space in our lives. They occupy our attention and they shape our action and they can be corrupting. They can be corrupting. They can do spiritual damage to us. And so Peter draws our focus to them here as of first importance. What desires do you think he had in mind? He doesn't actually say. I think because he wanted his readers to think about it for themselves. Where are the points at which your desires are waging war against your soul, against your life as a spiritual person made for God? That's the question. But I wonder if the context here of thinking about life in the world, I wonder if that should make us pay attention to some desires especially. Right? When you think about the world around you, what happens in your heart? Where does your heart go? Some of the directions it might go are evil. We might look at the world around us with envy, wishing we had what they had. Houses, cars, bodies. Or our eyes might be filled with lust for what we see desire to have, to consume what we should not. Alternatively, we might look at the world around us with its hostility sometimes to Christian faith and its challenges, and we might feel fear and end up wanting deeply, desiring too much actually, to find a way to security, a way to stay comfortable and safe. Finally, we, <clears throat> we might look at the world around us and feel hate. Loathing for things that disgust us and desire to see them brought down and ruined. Do you feel any of these things? 
I hope not, because they are sinful desires and they wage war against our souls. And what Peter says we need to do with them is to abstain from them. That means deciding not to indulge them, refusing to grant them space, the space in our attention and action that they hunger for. We can't always control the thoughts that pop into our minds, but we can make choices about what we do with them. Do I dwell on this thought, this fantasy, or do I set it aside as best I can and turn my mind to, think, to the things that I believe I am called to? No one is pretending that this is easy or clean cut. I'm sure Peter didn't think that either, but this is part of the Christian life. This seeking in the knowledge that God is a God of forgiveness, he keeps being gracious to us, and he will help us seeking to put to death, to turn away from desires that we know are not good for us. And that, says Peter, that is the first battle you face in the world today. Well, having put things in this perspective, Peter now goes on to talk directly about how the people he was writing to, how they must approach their lives in the Roman world. We start to get really clear hints here of the context they were in and the difficulties they were facing. But what Peter calls them to is neither to fight nor to flee, but to patiently, gently persist in doing good. Because real goodness has a beauty that can't be hidden in the end. Let's read again from verse 12. Live such good lives, Peter writes, among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, we might stop there because this is the general principle that Peter is going to apply in a range of specific areas uh, that we'll keep looking at over the coming weeks. But I've decided to continue into what he says next because it illustrates the key idea. So let's keep reading from verse 13. Submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Now, I'll say something about the approach to politics we see here in a second. But first, what I want to notice is the way Peter talks here again about doing good. Back in verse 12, he calls for Christians to live such good lives among the pagans. Pagans, by the way, just... just literally just means Gentiles, just means the nations. It, it didn't have the kind of really negative feel that it, it does for us. It's just the world, the people out there, really is what he's saying. Live such good lives that in the end, he says, those accusations, those slanders just won't hold water. They'll fall over. Now, at the end here, he says that God's will is that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There is a profound confidence here that genuine goodness, in the end, is persuasive. It has a kind of beauty and authority that can't be hidden. In the end, those who ridicule genuine goodness, who call it evil, they sound stupid and hollow. 
We live in an age of profound misinformation and deception. Speech is less and less and less trustworthy. Scams are more and more persuasive. Deep fakes are starting to be everywhere. I heard this week of another AI expert expressing worries about the new large language models because he thinks they will produce fairly soon individually tailored election interference. All this makes false accusation and slander easier than ever. What are we going to do? We can try to fight fire with fire, to dispute accusations if they come, to engage with ignorant talk. Gosh, there's a lot. And sometimes this fighting fire with fire will probably be unavoidable. But before any of that, Peter says, you need to put your confidence in the inherent power and persuasiveness of just doing good. Peter's confidence that genuine goodness is is just really compelling. It's one of the things that lies behind what he says about authorities and submitting to authorities, where it says that governors are sent by God to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. The word translated right there is actually just good again. So that is, there is a connection between verse 15, verse 14, governors are sent to commend those who do good, and verse 15, it's God's will that by doing good. Do you see what I mean? Um, And Peter's idea is that there is actually a natural connection between the job of governing and and policing and judgment and the goal of doing good. There's, There's a natural connection. The natural thing is for governors and judges to want people to do good. Now, before you get angry, please remember that Peter was not an idiot. He knew very well that governments and authorities don't always do this. Right? Just do take a moment to remember. He saw Jesus arrested and wrongfully executed. He himself had been hauled before magistrates and put in prison. He is speaking from a lot of experience of the realities of power, much more than most of us can claim to have, I think. But strangely enough, that experience doesn't lead him to pure cynicism and suspicion of government. That should at least make us curious. Why is that? Well, it's because he recognises that these human authorities, for all their faults, they have a task that's essentially good. They have a job of preserving peace, punishing crime, and upholding what is right so that society can, can keep functioning. It's not a perfect job, and they don't do it perfectly. But it's, it's basically a good and necessary thing. And so it is something we can respect and accept in faith. Because of Jesus. Out of conscience. And that's what submission means. Now, this is actually the consistent attitude of the New Testament to political authority. I could talk about it at much more length. I'm not going to. Um, Believe it or not, I have done academic work on this topic, and if you want, I can send you some ponderous journal articles. Um, Probably better, though, if you want to think further about this, and I encourage you to do that, probably better would be to listen to or read my sermon from last year on a 
another key text that says this kind of thing, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Um, If you would like to listen to it, you can find it in our sermon podcast from last year, 17th of July, partly because I preached quite a long sermon on it last year. I'm not going to go into it at great length again tonight. But if you'd like to listen to it there, if you want to read it, I have printed a few copies. People took them in the morning, but there's a few left available at the entry. Um, That's if you want to think through this stance towards political authority at a bit more length. For now, without pretending that all the questions are resolved or anything, can I invite us just to hear Peter's main point, his central exhortation. Live such good lives in this world, in this world, in the midst of it, not outside it, not hidden from view, but there in the thick of it, that in the end, those who want to slander have to fall silent. The word Peter uses there in verse 12 for good lives also means fine or admirable. Um, it's, it's almost like it has a sense of beauty or nobility to it. Make it your ambition to live a noble life, friends. A life that is genuinely beautiful and admirable. I don't mean like, he doesn't mean a a, a middle class life. Don't hear that into it. A fine life, you know. Fine, very easy. It's not like that. He means something that's, that's really beautiful and actually that might make you poorer. I do know Christian people who live like this. People whose lives are, are simply admirable. Not perfect, of course, nobody's is, but, but good. And people do see them and they admire them. And I hope you know people like this too. Make it your ambition, friends. Ask for God's help to do it. But there is one more aspect of what Peter says here that we need to pay attention to, what he says about freedom. We take this stance towards the world and authorities, not because we don't have any choice, but because we do. Because we are free. Look what he says in verse 16. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. What does Peter mean when he says that his readers are free people? I think he means that because of their faith in Christ, there really is a sense in which they are free to do what they want. Jesus has set, you, set them free, and so they are not owned by the authorities that are over them. The emperor said he owned his people, but he didn't really. He doesn't really, says Peter. You're free because you've been redeemed. You've been set free by Christ. And so you don't belong to the emperor or to this tribe or to anyone anymore. Well, not quite anyone. We'll see in a second. But before we do, I just want to note, it's easy for us to underestimate how radical the Christian proclamation of freedom was when it first appeared. But it was felt as a radical challenge to the existing structures of, of empire and authority and family. And it still is a challenge. When someone becomes a Christian, suddenly another loyalty comes into their lives that means the loyalties they have to family, community and nation suddenly don't 
mean as much. They're suddenly kind of in question. What's going to happen to those? You are free people, says Peter. Christ has set you free and you need to decide what you're going to do with that. So what are you going to do? Well, he says, here's where you need to remember the reason you are free and what it really means to be free. You are free because you've become God's slaves. You were redeemed, you were set free to be his servants. Now that's full-on language, isn't it? God's slaves. But I think it helps us to understand it, to know that, as we've seen over the past weeks, Peter is working with ideas from Israel's history. One of the most interesting parts of the law of Israel was uh, a bit called the law of Jubilee. It's found in in Leviticus chapter 25. Uh, All these rules about this special year when when debts had to be uh, forgiven. And one of the things we read there is that Israelites were never permitted to be sold into slavery permanently, forever. They always had to be set free after a certain point. Why is that? Well, here's what it says. Look at it. It's really interesting. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, this is back from this is in Leviticus 25, Israel's law, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee, for the Israelites belong to me, says God, as slaves. They are my slaves whom I brought out of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Peter's saying the same thing. He's saying, you're free because you are God's slaves. And that means that your freedom cannot be merely a chance to do what you want, a chance to get something for yourselves, an opportunity to do evil. It can't be that. Because it's freedom to serve God. God bought you. And so what law is to do right order. Notice the words, won't you? Uh, that, that phrase, proper respect, is actually just the word honour again. So P- Peter says, honour everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. We can honour, respect and acknowledge everyone in their due place. And that's That's powerful because the emperor wanted much more than honour. The Roman emperor said, you've got to worship me. Worship me. And Peter says, well, why don't you just honour him instead? And it's it's got a kind of lame feel to it, and that's purposeful, I think. You want worship? Uh, No, but here's some honour, you know. But we do love the family of believers, and we fear God which means we give him the first place of reverence in our lives. That's what really being free looks like, you see. Freedom to give things their right place, to refuse the inflated claims and pretensions that people have, but also freedom not to resent and to react in anger all the time. We can give respect even when people don't really deserve it. We can be generous even when others are pretty ungracious. Because we've been bought by God for himself and given to one another as his people. There is a lot we could talk about, about what all this means in our context, how it works, what it adds up to. I hope that we will be able to do some of that together. I hope you'll be able to do it in connect groups and things like that. But I want to finish again tonight by just noticing the big picture. 
what we see here about the posture we are called to take within the world. I think we can sum it up as it's a posture of hopeful connection and consistent conviction. Hopeful connection and consistent conviction. We don't run in fear from the world, despite its complexities and sometimes hostilities. Nor do we frantically fight for our place and our power. Instead, we remember what we believe and have learnt from the gospel. That our real battle is for our own integrity as God's servants. And the task he calls us to is to use our freedom to patiently persist in doing good. And I think that is really beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, you have exalted the Lord Jesus to your right hand and given him all honour and glory. And we praise him and we praise you. We thank you that though he was, was rejected, he was accepted by you and set on high. And we praise you that through him you have redeemed us, made us your servants, your slaves, and set us free. Lord, would our confidence in these truths give us the strength to live in this world in a beautiful way, seeking to do as much good as we can and holding out this message to others around us with great gentleness and real joy. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.